Who or what are you most afraid of? Who or what are you most afraid of? If you've never thought about it, today would be a good day to start. Because if you don't know what you're most afraid of, then you cannot identify what is controlling you the most. Because at the end of the day, what we fear the most is what enslaves us the most. Fear controls people. I think we all know this to some extent. For example, this is a pithy one, but if you fear spiders, then you become their servant. You really do. If they walk towards you, you will run the other way. If you crawl in a tight space that's full of cobwebs, then you have entered their kingdom and you have no power here. You are powerless under their reign. You will get out of there. And if they come towards you, you will leave. Right. OK, so that's that's a, a small example. Uh, arachnophobia. It's silly. Right. We, we can think about that and kind of joke. But what is much more serious is the kind of fear that we're going to be talking about today. And that is fear of man. Fear of other people. Fear of what others will think about you or do to you. And this one is actually much more common than arachnophobia. right? It's something that all humans struggle with. Uh, this universal sin causes us to modify our behavior based upon the opinion of others. Right? And this plays out in a plethora of different ways. It could be something as minor as how you dress for an event. Right. That's not very ethical, but it could be in some ways or something monstrously ethical that puts people's lives on the line. And in those scenarios, when the pressure is on, we frequently let go of our tightly held beliefs. Right. We say we believe this firmly, but when the pressure's on, fear is what pries our fingers open to let go of our standards. And some of you are thinking, well, the, the spider example, example was a little bit dramatic, right? But I thought so too until I saw grown men squirm and squeal in the presence of a spider. The reason that you think that that isn't such a big deal is because that's not your biggest fear. But something that hits a lot closer to home is fear of man, right? That really does control us. And that's what we're going to be talking about and seeing today uh, played out in our story. Uh, so what is the solution to this? What's the solution to having your hand pried open by fear? How do you keep that grip? How do you remain faithful in the light of great fear that you're going to be facing in life? Well, the answer is going to be in our text this morning. Again, it is John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning, church. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all 
unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone of Payment and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So we so he delivered him over to be crucified. Word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this grim but true story, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts the truth that you try, you are trying to speak to us. Lord, as we look at the, the weakness, the human weakness of Pilate, I pray that you would instruct us to be able to see that we too are human. Lord, I pray that you would work on our souls, that we might be able to see a path forward to, to know what the answer is to human frailty, to know what the answer is to human weakness and fear. Teach us, Lord, as we look to your word. We know that we, you will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this text begins with these words. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. It might seem off topic now to move to the subject of fear or from the subject of fear of man to speak about flogging. But I want you to look at it from this angle. Because of the fear of man, Jesus ended up getting flogged. Okay, that, that's the result of the fear of man. And I want to give a little bit of context to flogging and scourging, uh, lest we just skip over it and not think that much of it. Flogging, if anyone is unfamiliar, was the practice of taking a whip of leather cords. So imagine a long whip with leather cords that often had pieces of bone and metal tied into it. And this whip was used to whip a man's back. To a bloody pulp. You can imagine what a man's back would look like after you repeatedly whip him. Not just once, but many, many times you would whip his back. Now, according to contemporary references around the time of Jesus, we learn that flogging was, no surprise, exceedingly brutal. Okay, Josephus, a Jewish historian, records a man, Jesus, son of Ananias. This is not Jesus, uh, son of Joseph. Uh, but th there was a man named Jesus, and it says he was flayed to the bone with scourges. Okay, He was scourged. Eusebius, another historian, records that men, and I quote, were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs, were exposed to sight. And Cicero, no surprise, once commented that men sometimes die from scourging. Right? This was a brutal, brutal practice. This is the way that this text begins. And this church is what Pilate says to behold in verse 5. Behold the man, Jesus in his humiliated state. This is what fear of man looks like. Now, perhaps Pilate was appealing to any bit of pity that the Jews might have had as they looked upon such a sad sight. He showed them there so that he would evoke something. And look at this. Look what you guys are doing. He's essentially saying, look at him. Look what you are doing to this man. I, I said he's not guilty. Look what you're doing here. 
Here I present to you a man dressed in royal robes and a, a crown of thorns, bloody and bruised from being flogged and struck by the hands of men. Obviously, he's not a king. What are you guys doing? Isn't this humiliation enough? And yet you want to take this further? How miserable a sight. Think about that. Imagine sitting in that crowd. Pilate calls Jesus forth and you look at him. Imagine that sight. Any man, it would have been a horrible thing. But imagine the innocent Jesus comes out in such a graphic scene. That should have been enough to to, to have everyone drop on their knees. They should have been worshiping their king. They should have rightly recognized that that was their king. It should have brought deep shame upon every onlooker. And yet they were so hardened in their sin that they had not a drop of pity. They wanted to go further. They wanted to take this to the next level. And all along, Pilate knows Jesus is not guilty. He says it repeatedly through this text. We've even seen it last week. He knows Jesus is not guilty. He knows this is all wrong. But when the Jews mention that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, this seems to strike an even deeper chord with him. He knows it's wrong, but when they say that he's the Son of God, it makes him question his decisions once again. He's like, wait a second, Son of God? Maybe it was superstition. Maybe it was conviction of God. Only God knows. But his intuitive gut, something deep down inside of Pilate, was not able to shake the fear that he was making a horrible decision. Something was off about this, and he knew it. Could this really be the Son of God? Could Jesus be who he said he is? Could Jesus be who he's accused of being? So he had to further ask Jesus, where are you from? What's going on here? Where are you from, Jesus? And I can't help but wonder what Pilate was expecting from that question. What do you think he wanted? Where are you from? He's been told that Jesus is the Son of God, so he asks, where are you from? Would he have have stopped the trial if Jesus had once again, he's already said it more than once, that he is not in this world, or he's not of this world or from this world. He came into this world. Would he have stopped the trial if Jesus had reiterated this again, that he comes from heaven? Or maybe... Would he have more confidence in his decision to crucify Jesus if Jesus had just said, well, I came from Bethlehem? And Pilate would say, oh, well, you're just a man then. What was Jesus or what was Pilate looking for when he asked this question? But Jesus, he doesn't give him an answer. Jesus does not answer Pilate. He doesn't tell Pilate where he is from. Now, why didn't Jesus help him out more? Pilate's asking a question and Jesus doesn't give him an answer. And, And someone might say, well, why didn't Jesus accommodate him? Pilate's searching here. Why didn't Jesus kind of reach out and come to him? He knew Pilate's gut was tied in a knot trying to undo the mess that he's made. Why not answer Pilate and set him back on track? Now, it's the same reason God doesn't speak in a thundering voice to every atheist who demands God speak audibly or he won't believe in him. Right? I've heard this kind of thing lots. I'm sure you've heard it too. I talk to non-believers pretty frequently, and the the biggest charge that I hear, what what they almost always say is, uh, I don't believe because God hasn't answered me when I asked him a question. They want a thundering voice from heaven where God will speak to them the exact answer that they want to hear, mind you. They they want God to say what what he wants, uh, or they want God to say what they want God to say. It was really what they want. So here's my objection to that. You haven't answered God. Why would he answer you? You have not answered God. Consider the context here. Jesus already told Pilate that he was not from this world. He's came into this world. Pilate has the sufficient answer to the question that he's asking already. If he didn't, 
I'm confident Jesus would have already given him an answer. He would have told Pilate, I, I came from here. But he's already told Pilate. Jesus desires that Pilate simply act on what he already knows. Pilate wants more evidence. He wants more reason. But Jesus is saying, I've given you enough by not answering. You have what you need to believe. You just want more than that. And that is often what causes unbelievers to not make the next step. They want more evidence. They want more proof. They want to look at, to, uh, look at, the, look at it from a, a scientific angle. And they want more evidence, right? And this is what I tell the unbeliever. Quit demanding God speak to you and respond to what God has already spoken to you. God has spoken to you. Who are you to ignore your creator and act as if he doesn't exist? The fact that you are alive is one way that God has spoken to you. God speaks through all of creation. It's the resounding voice of God. He's made all of it, and you're ignoring the fact that he has made all of it. All creation is the resounding voice of God. And if it wasn't enough for him to speak to you in creation, <coughs> consider the fact that he's given you the Holy Scriptures, the God-breathed word, his very word. He's, it says it's God-breathed. It's a word about it out of his mouth. Is what we have in our hands here. God has spoken we are just often not willing to listen. We want more than what God has already spoken. That is why Jesus doesn't answer Pilate. Because Jesus has already said enough. Pilate already knows the truth. What he's doing now is he's just suppressing the truth, as it says in Romans 1. He's afraid. He's scared. So he's just going to try to push this away and ignore it. He wants more proof to go on his uh, own, own thinking. He doesn't want to, to listen to the gut that is telling him this is wrong. So he's suppressing it. This is what Romans 1 speaks of when it talks about the unbeliever. Romans 1, 25 says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This self-fear controls us. And this is exactly what Pilate did. It says he feared in verse 8. He's scared. But he feared man more than God. That's the thing. Is fear was there, but he feared man more than God. And when we give more worship, more service, more importance to what people think of us than what God thinks, we commit idolatry. We do. It's idolatry because you're putting more importance on a creature rather than the creator, the one that made it. We serve the creature rather than the creator when we do this. Pilate was caught in the middle of man and God. He had to make a decision. He knew Jesus was innocent. He did. His wife counseled him not to go through it. If you read the other Gospels accounts, it shows that his wife had a dream about this. She's scared too, and she says, leave this man alone. Don't do this. Don't go there. Also, Jesus is reminding him that, yes, uh, he has the authority to crucify him, but only because God was giving that authority to him. He has red flags all around him, and Pilate can't just do whatever he wants and be justified. That's what everything in his life is telling him right now. His wife's saying it. Jesus is saying it. His gut is saying it. He, has, he is under authority himself, and he was feeling it. He was feeling the weight of authority. That authority that, uh, that he had was of divine authority given to him to choose the righteous path. That's the role that he was in. And what Jesus was doing, he was essentially saying, it's not too late. Yes, you've already flogged me. Yes, we went this far, and that's sinful. But the greater sin is on the heads of those who have delivered me over you. Don't go through with this. Don't do it. Yes, they have the greater sin, but that doesn't make what you're doing right either. You have the authority and the right to do what is right here, and you must choose. You must make the decision yourself. So there Pilate was, caught between two hard places. He, he had two hard choices. Neither one was easy. 
Let's be honest. Neither of these choices were easy. He could humble himself and turn the tide of this horrible, grievous trial, serve God, or he could give in to the people and crucify Jesus, serve man. Either one's hard, but there's only one right decision. Either one had consequences, but only one was right. And if you've never noticed before, pay attention to verse 12. It says, Pilate sought to release Jesus. He's even vying for Jesus. He's trying to tell these people, Jesus is innocent, right? He, he's trying. He was uh, trying, but in the end, the Jews knew how to play him. They knew. They knew how to play him. They vied for his loyalty to the state more than God by saying, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. So they're playing him. Now, let's, let's give a little practical application here. This is often where people are caught in leadership positions and, and management positions. Maybe you've been here before in your workplace. There's all kinds of different ways this can be applied, but maybe here it was at work. You, you held a, a management position, and you knew what the right thing to do was. You sought, like Pilate, to do the righteous path. You were trying to do what was right, but in the end, people played you. They said certain things that started to, to tug at you. Are you a team player or not? Let's say, say things like that. Whose side are you on? Are you on our, our competitor's side or are you with us? Go through with the deal. Do what you have to to keep this company afloat. I don't care if it's right and wrong. you got to put food on, on the table for your family. Are you going to do this or not? This is what you have to do. Let's say things like that. To where it feels like you have no other choice. You have to make it. But do you? Do you ever have to make the wrong decision? That's what we need to be asking ourselves in those kind of tough situations. Or take it out of the leadership angle altogether and apply it to the fact that someone's life was on the line. Jesus' life was on the line. And I want to speak gently here because this is a really sensitive subject, but it's something that our culture is dealing with now. In Pilate's context, everyone was saying that Jesus was too big of a problem and that it would be better for him to die than all the people to deal with him. And I couldn't help but be struck when I was reading a commentary uh, on this passage that one of the paragraphs began with this section. It just it stuck something in my gut. I'll, I'll quote it. It says, This section marks Pilate's final abortive attempt to release Jesus. And when I read that word, abortive attempt, I felt something. Abortive attempt. Maybe you've been placed in a hard situation like Pilate, and you find yourself with someone's life on the line. Maybe you were pregnant with a child, and maybe you didn't even want the child. Pilate didn't want Jesus. He didn't want to have to deal with Jesus. Jesus was an unwanted case for Pilate. Pilate knew what he was signing up for, though, when he took the position. Just like women, when they find themselves in an unwanted pregnancy, often, not always, know what they were getting into when they were sleeping with the person. But they never thought that it would come to having to make a decision like this. You don't realize it when you're there. You don't think about the things further down the road. But people are, today, people are giving up innocent life because of the pressures of the people were too strong. It's happening right now. It'll happen today. Someone will give in to the pressures and they will abort children. They fear man. They're scared. They're scared of the consequences, and I don't want to take that lightly at all. Fear of man controls us to do all kinds of things. It doesn't even have to be a big crowd like Pilate was dealing with where lots and lots of people are saying, do it. Right? It doesn't have to be that. It could be one single lover that you're scared to death that you'll lose if you don't do it 
he says. It could be as small as that. It could be a family of people, so a smaller group, trying to protect their dignity to keep quiet. Just just keep quiet. Don't say anything. We don't need this right now. Right? There's all kinds of different ways, different reasons that we might cave into pleasing man instead of God. And we know the right decision. Now, church, I want you to be ready for this kind of thing. I want us to be prepared in our hearts for when it does happen because people will play you like a fiddle if you let them. They'll harp on all your heartstrings. They will play you by questioning your loyalties like Pilate. They will make you feel like a traitor if you don't do what they want. This is what Pilate's dealing with. They will use their emotions to manipulate you. They will abuse your brain, your mental state, the same way that they did Christ's back. Your brain will start to look like that after you go through the mental manipulation that people will put you through. They will whip you to the bone until you relent to their way. And the question is, do you fear that more or do you fear God more? It's really simple when you put it like that, but... That's the, the case. That's that's the scenario that Pilate was in. That's the scenario that we will find ourselves in at times. Which one are you going to fear more? Going through that or fear of God on the other, other hand? That's the question. And th- this question is actually the solution to our original question. How do you keep from letting go of your ethical standards in the face of fear? How do you do that? Well, the answer is partly, well, just stop being afraid of them. But let's be honest. That, that's not helpful. That, that, that isn't helping in the slightest bit to just say stop it. So let me give you a real solution. When you're, you're scared to death and you have this ethical belief right here and you feel like your fingers are being pried open, what do you do? What do you do? So what you must do in the face of crippling fear, from finger prying fear, is to find a bigger, a larger fear that will drive you to an outcome that aligns with your deeply held beliefs. You need to find something that will be scarier to you in your mind, something that you fear even more, but will actually lead you in where you want to be, where your gut is telling you you need to be. If you fear man, you will become his slave. You will do whatever he wants you to do. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, maybe we should take that Less literally, I'm not saying that isn't a literal uh, meaning there, but just think of it from this angle, at least. You will go through hell if you allow a person to control you. Here on earth, it'll be on earth as it is in hell, not on earth as it is in heaven. If you live under the rule and the reign of fear of man, you will live hell here, right now. That will be your reality. So what we need to do is evaluate the situation. Do I really want this? You realize that it won't profit a man to gain the whole world if he'll lose his soul later. Or maybe even just be miserable now. Is it worth caving on your deeply held belief now in exchange for your soul eternally? That's what Jesus is getting at in that passage. He's talking about the eternal consequence. But I'd take it even further and say, what about next week when you're guilt-ridden? When you knew it was the wrong decision, but you allowed people to play you. right? So in the thick of it, that's how we should think. You need to embrace a bigger fear because when you do this, when you embrace that bigger fear, which is fear of God, you're not turning to a wrathful God looking down on you in anger. You're not. You're turning to the God who is love. God is love. That's who you're turning to. And perfect love casts out all fear. Interesting, isn't it? 
when we have the, the bigger fear, the reverential fear of God, when we turn to him, we recognize fear has to do with punishment. But when you look at God through the lens of the gospel, you realize that Jesus has already taken that punishment for you. Behold the man. Look at his back. Look at his scars. Look what he's done for you. Behold your king. That's what I want you to do in the face of fear. Look at the man that went through all of that for you. And when you do that, you're going to be embracing a way bigger God, a way more powerful God, a God that has so much self-control that he will allow himself to go through your punishment to set you free. That's good news, church. That's an amazing thing when we think about it from that angle. But here's the warning, okay? Here's the warning. Our temptation in this moment of fear, when we're starting to let go of our grip, what we often try to do in these scenarios is to abdicate our responsibility. We want to say, well, I had to do it. okay? And what that is doing is saying, I'm not responsible for it. I had to do it. And this is what Pilate is doing here. He admits to Jesus that he has the authority to release him or crucify him. This is important. So it's clear as day there in verse 10 that he has the authority. Pilate's in charge. Pilate can do what he wants to do. Okay? So he so the decision is his responsibility. The, the, the weight is on his shoulders, and Pilate was feeling it. Yet he was tossed to and fro, back and forth about what to do, even though he knew what he needed to do. He brought, he brought Jesus out to the people who told Pilate what he should do, and then knowing it was wrong, he recoiled back and back and forth, back and forth. Jesus is going in and out, in and out. Shall I crucify his king, your king? That, that's what he asked them, as if he has to ask for what he is given the authority to already do. Shall I crucify your king? He could have said, we're going to crucify your king. Or we're not going to crucify your king. But he asks the people. And by doing that, he thinks that he can abdicate his responsibility. Then after he allows them to make his decision, he took water and he washed his hands. Remember? Washed his hands and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. We're tempted to do the same thing, though, in our sin. We're tempted to abdicate our responsibility and start to backpedal. Some of you have already had your moment and failed like Pilate. Now, after hearing Pilate's story, you're guilt-ridden. You feel it. You haven't taken full responsibility. Why? Why do you feel that? Why is the guilt there? It's because Pilate wasn't necessarily an extraordinary sinner. He was an ordinary sinner. And in fact, the text explicitly tells us in verse 11, there were greater sins at play. There was bigger sins. So Pilate wasn't even the biggest sinner here. But this is where most of us are. We're average Joe sinners, like Pilate. Now, now, now many of you, actually, I would say all of you in here, have done some pretty awful things, including myself. We've done some really shameful things that we are not proud of. But, but, but the fact that we aren't as bad as some professional sinners isn't enough to clear us from guilt. We can't say, well, he's worse than I am, as if that would somehow make us clear before holy God. How well do you think that water washed Pilate's hands? We need something more than water, don't we? We need blood. You see, we can proclaim ourselves as innocent. We can say whatever we want. We can try to evade our responsibility. But at the end of the day, we are all guilty until someone in authority over us says, you are not guilty. And it wasn't just Pilate's sin that held Christ on the cross. It was yours too. It it was mine too. And only God has the final authority to grant us pardon from sin. 
Only he gets to say who is guilty or not guilty. So my encouragement to you today is don't brush off your sins. Take full responsibility for it. Take full responsibility for your sins. Assurance of pardon, that conscience, that clear conscience, does not come from declaring ourselves innocent, saying, well, I'm fine. I didn't do anything. I had to do it, uh, so I'm not really guilty. Actually, it's the complete opposite. Assurance of pardon doesn't come from declaring ourselves innocent. Assurance of, of pardon comes from declaring ourselves guilty. It comes from declaring ourselves guilty, because only when we declare ourselves guilty sinners are we made ready for pardon. For being freed from something. This is because those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, right? It's actually a good thing to identify with that group of people. So Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's who Jesus came to save. So when we declare ourselves as sinners, saying, I'm a sinner, we number ourselves among the people that Jesus came to save. We, 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 we open ourselves up to that, saying, no, uh, my hands are clean. No, thank you, Jesus. No, we say, I am, I'm in desperate need. I've done some awful, awful things. And once we repent, that's when we find assurance of pardon. That's when your burden gets lifted off of you. But, but still yet, that authority uh, to declare us not guilty is God's. It's not something that we get to do on our own. That's why I always read the assurance of pardon in the liturgy from God's word. God is the only one that can do it. I can't do it. No one can do it. And catch this. Your government can't do it. Your government can't declare you not guilty. Just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's righteous. Doesn't mean that you are not guilty before a holy God. There are lots of things that are legal that we can do in this country. But some of those things make us guilty before a holy God. And they can't tell us that we are guilty or not guilty in that sense. They have they don't have control over our souls, but God does. And we need to keep that in mind the way that we act in a unrighteous society that allows so much stuff to fly by. Just because you're getting away with it now and just because you're fearing the government now over God doesn't mean that you'll get away with it later. Confront it now. Take your issues on now. That's what we need to do uh, in the light of gripping, uh, gripping fear is to just run to someone bigger, run to Jesus. So if you find yourself tempted to cave into sin and compromise your beliefs or even have sinned already, you've already caved, you've already done something. The only place that you should run to is Jesus. Run to Jesus. Don't hide in your darkness. Run to the light. That's what he welcomes us to. Don't run to others for affirmation. Don't run to anyone else for affirmation. Don't run to the state to declare you innocent. Run only to the gentle and lowly king that welcomes us to come to him. If you're weak, if you're burdened, if you're heavy laden, Jesus says, come to me. Take that that call to worship that we had this morning seriously. Come to Jesus today. Let him welcome you and embrace you and give you a different kind of yoke than the burden that you're currently holding. Not slavery, not yoked to, to, to sin, but the yoke of righteousness. You are yoked to Jesus and his righteousness when you come to him. So that where that he goes, wherever Jesus goes, you're going to be attached to him. You're going to have that advocate right there carrying that weight for you. And when you are attached to him, you're going to be attached to the truth. And when the truth sets you free, you're free indeed. That's real assurance of pardon. That's real burden off your shoulders. That's a real way to live, church. That's what I welcome you today. As we, as we look at this case, it's scary to look where Pilate went. And what, I want my, what my heart is for you, village, is to not go there. Don't go there. 
Don't allow the fear of man to trump your fear of God. Fear God, and when you realize you're coming to God and that, and that reverential fear, all the, the bad punishment fear is gone. You're welcomed to a, a lowly and gentle king who says, come to me, and he'll embrace you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you today yoked to your son Jesus. We thank you that we can claim his righteousness. We thank you that he has told us that he will carry our burden, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room today uh, that is sitting here looking and reading and contemplating the story of Pilate. I pray that you would impress upon their hearts anyone who has not confessed their guilt, anyone who has not uh, taken responsibility for their sins. I pray that they would find the freedom to do that. And when they do that, Lord, I pray that you would welcome them in with your love. I pray that you would welcome them in, helping them to realize that they don't have to live a life of hell here on earth. And they certainly won't have to live one eternally. So, Lord, I pray that you would free us all in this room. Give us power by your Holy Spirit to say no. I pray that you would give us the strength to hold tightly to the things that you call us to by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's continue to worship this morning by standing and singing together how deep the Father's love for us. You'll find this on our um, on our hymnal that we've kind of been building out, some of the newer songs that are not in our hymnal. That is on hymn number four. Please stand with me as we